So I'm going to pray right now, and I'm just going to ask that God would help all of us as we truly surrender to him, that he would refresh and restore. And wherever there is weariness that has just beaten us down and beaten us back, that God would lift us up and renew our strength, that we would mount up on wings as eagles. Amen? So we're going to pray. I'm going to pray that for you. We're going to pray for Set Church, and we're going to pray for the sermon. So, Father, we just ask right now, wherever we are in our journey with you, and if we have never been transformed by the power of your grace because of the gospel and what Jesus has done, would you do that tonight, Lord? And I ask, Father, that, that it wouldn't stop there, that every day we would have this event and encouragement by your Spirit in us as we surrender to you, as we look to you, as we say, Abba, Father, you are our all and all. Tonight, God, I just ask that you would restore and refresh our souls in Jesus' name. And Father, I, I want to thank you for my brother Dan Mastrapa, pastor over at Scent Church. Uh, Lord, they've gone through a lot, just as we have in the last year with COVID. And I just pray, Father, that you would meet every need that they have. Father, that you would continue to proclaim the gospel. And then when it is, people will come to a realization of who you are. And that, Father, lives would be surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Continue to extend their impact in this city and I ask you, Lord, that you would pour blessing upon blessing as he's raising up leaders and as they're being sent out to seek to share Christ and build up your body. And now, Father, right now, as we look into your word, and Father, I do pray for my wife and Juliana, for Mary and anyone else who has been sick, that you would heal their bodies and restore them physically in the name of Jesus. And Lord, as we look into your word tonight, would you open our eyes and would you give us great understanding? Would your spirit speak to us very personally? Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. You know, as a kid, I have to admit to you, I was teased a lot. And I grew up as an insecure kid, constantly looking for the approval of others. And I, I think most of us, to some degree, have been uh, teased growing up. But for me, I wanted to fit in. I wanted to fit in so hard. And consequently, you know, I, how many of you, by the way, grew up in the 60s or 70s? Raise your hand. Yeah, Saxon, Matt, yeah, right. Okay, there's a couple of us here, okay. And I was just so amazed, just, I was so excited the, the day that I got bell-bottoms. Yes, I felt like finally I'm going to fit in and I'm not going to be this dorky nerd, right? And dorky nerds are great, by the way. I love, I'm a dorky nerd, just so you know. But, you know, bell-bottoms, if, if you're not familiar with them, they're like parachutes at the bottom of your legs, you know, Batman, Superman had a cape, and who, who was it uh, that had the umbrella? Help me out here. Uh, Mary Poppins had the umbrella. So we, we had bell bottoms, okay? And then, have you ever heard of Apache ties? Apache ties were, ties were kind of cool. They're, they're, you just kind of fit them around your neck, and they're like handkerchiefs, okay? And you roll them up like this. You put them around your neck, and there was a little, um, a little ring, and you kind of just put the ring up here, and it was like a little... Cool looking tie. And I just thought, man, I, I'm just going to be so cool when I go to school. <laughs> right? And the truth is, 
Um, I was not cool. <laughs> I just was not. But I wanted to fit in so much. I really did. Someone complimented me the other day. They called me a cool nerd. I'm, I'm not quite sure about the cool part, but wow, a cool nerd. Okay. You know what, guys? I think we're always wanting, all of us, not just me, come on, but we're always wanting to fit in. We're always wanting to be accepted and liked by others. I mean, f- when Facebook came out with the like, that was like pew, sensational. Everyone wanted their posts to be liked and their pictures to be liked. Like me. That's what we're crying. That's really the cry of our heart. Like me. Will someone like me? I don't think I'm being overly dramatic here. We want to be liked. And, and the problem, though, is we do things to kind of fit in. Saul was no different. We're going to look at Saul and we're going to look at David. And I want us to see something here because there is an incident that we're going to be looking at in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And we're going to see this contrast. Because you remember David was called a man after God's own heart. What, what is that? A man after God's own heart. Because Saul was not. But I tell you what, when you looked at Saul, he looked like a king. He looked like a godly king. But see, he wasn't. And he did things to fit in. Just like Putting on bell-bottoms and wearing an Apache tie does not make one cool, especially not today. But even back then, because there is something for people to really like who you are. It is not how you look. It's who you are. It's something inside. And that's where Saul missed it. And I think as as Christians, it's so easy for us to kind of fit in with the Christian crowd. But the truth is, what is God doing on the inside. So I want you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. I'm going to read the whole chapter. 2 Samuel chapter 6. You know, just because you walk like a duck and you quack like a duck and you look like a duck, don't make you a duck. Okay? And this is true. Don't do that here, please, okay? But Saul tried so hard. I want us to look at this. How? Because the bottom line question that we're asking every week is how do we walk always in triumphal procession? 2 Corinthians 2.14, how do we walk in this triumphal procession? Because Saul did not, but see, David did. Verse 1. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Baala of Judah to bring up from there the ark, of the, the ark of God, which is called the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill, Uzzah, and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new ark, excuse me, the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might. You can just picture this. They're taking it, and they're going to be taking it several miles, and 
<coughs> excuse me, and all of Israel, 30,000 of these chosen people, they are celebrating with David as this ark is being brought up to Jerusalem. Now, what I'm going to do next week is I'm going to go back and I'm going to look at how David was crowned king. But as I was looking at this, I decided I, I needed to focus on chapter six tonight and then chapter, actually chapters two through five next week. But here they are. If you can just imagine, David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all of their might before the Lord with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And in this day, and to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He, is not, he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David, which would be Jerusalem. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So... David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. He's going at this one more time, but he's going to do it differently. When those who are carrying the ark of the Lord, notice what I just said. They're carrying the ark of the Lord. We're going to come back to that. When those who have been carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he, referring to David, sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul. That's important for us to realize. Daughter, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. When he gave a loaf of bread, a cake, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israel, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. So huge celebration. All done, David goes home. And we get to peer inside his home in a conversation that he has with his wife. When David returned home to bless his household, that's his goal. Michael, again, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler of the Lord's people, uh, of, the Lord's of, of the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more 
undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now, just a few weeks ago on a Wednesday night, I taught from this passage. I focused on the last half. I'm going to focus on the first half tonight. I am going to include the latter half, but not much. But we're going to look at some other passages because I want us to get a picture of Saul. And I'm going to tell you right now that the apple did not fall far from the tree. Do you know what I mean? Saul, we see a picture of Saul, and his daughter is just like him. Now, here's the question. Here's the, the, not the question, the challenge. David comes to Michael, his wife, daughter of Saul, and she just says, "You, you, in essence, really blew it out there as king today. And she's trying to, see, the author says she despised him in her heart. You remember me reading that? And now she's vocalizing, she's verbalizing this to her husband who truly, what he did, it honored God, and he smiled upon it. But this spirit of Saul, this attitude that has gripped his family, it didn't grip Jonathan, but it has Michael. And she is just so offended that he took his kingly robe off. And in doing that, danced mightily. I can only imagine that by the end, he was exhausted. And he danced before the Lord with all of his might. And this is what he says. Excuse me. It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler of the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. Why? Did God choose David instead of Saul? Because I, I want to remind you as we go back just a, a couple of pages here to 1 Samuel chapter 13, and Samuel is rebuking Saul, and I, I quoted it about a, a man after God's own heart, and we find it in these two verses. I'm going to read them to you again, but it says, You acted foolishly, Saul is rebuking, Samuel is rebuking Saul. You acted foolishly. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. See, Saul had been, Saul was told, wait seven days, and when I get there, I will lead you in the sacrifice. But they were getting ready to go to battle with the Philistines, and, and they heard this routing and, and rooting and shouts in the Philistine camp, and Saul was getting nervous. He knew he was outnumbered, and he's getting nervous. He wants to wait, but he gets impatient. Sacrificing to the Lord needs to take a back seat to what Saul thinks is the best way to handle this in going to battle. So Saul, Samuel rebukes him, you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had... He would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord 
has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Now, I want us to look at something in chapter 14. Understand 13 and 14 is the same battle scene. Different things are happening and progressing as it's moving on in this war against the Philistines. And again, they are about ready to engage the Philistines in battle. And I want you to see something. Excuse me. I want you to see something here in verse uh, 16. Excuse me. I'm sorry. 18. Saul said to Ahijah, and Ahijah apparently is the high priest at this time, and he says to Ahijah, bring the ark of God. At that time, it was with the Israelites. While Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. I want us to see a few things here. Number one, this is how Saul deals with the problem. He needs success. How is he going to get success? He thinks strategically, how am I going to get success? See, David would have gone about this so completely differently. Here's what Saul does. Hey, let's go fetch the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is in Kiriath-Jerim. David is the one who brings it from Abinadab's house in Kiriath-Jerim, but we read he, he encountered some problems. So I'm going to suggest you, suggest you that even though Saul requests the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, they don't get it because he cuts them off. He realizes, again, the Philistines, they're getting, they're, they're getting ready to, to, to attack, battle. We don't have time for this. So he wants the Ark to come, but he doesn't. I want you to consider a question. Why does he want the Ark of the Covenant? You do not use the Ark of the Covenant to seek God's will. You use a couple of things. You can ask a prophet. You could ask a priest, and he does with regard to the ephod we'll look at in a moment. You could have a dream. Here's what we discover. By the end of Saul's reign, He has gotten rid of the prophets. He has gotten rid of the priests with the ephod. God refuses to give him a dream. There is no way for Saul when he is facing the Philistines yet again, and it's his last battle, and he dies, by the way, on Mount Gilboa. Spoiler alert, by the way, right? But he he says right there, and the the prophet tells us in, in 1 Samuel 28, he says, God could not speak to him. There were no priests. There were no prophets. They had left the land. He had killed many priests, 85 of them, by the way. So here he is. He's requesting the Ark of the Covenant because the Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of God. He wants God's presence right there in battle. Does this ring a bell to you if you have read 1 Samuel? Yes. This is exactly what they did many years ago. They had this brilliant idea. Oh, my goodness. If God's presence, if he's truly seated on the mercy seat, which is the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, and God's presence is there. Guys, I don't know who it was that came up with this idea. Guys, I got a great idea. 
we're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle with us against the Philistines. There's no way they can win. We've got our good luck charm, right? We've got the Ark of the Covenant. And I'm sure they patted this guy on the back. That was an amazing thing. What a great strategy. Was it a great strategy, church? You remember what happened. The Israelites actually lost the battle. The Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God, into their land. And what happened to them? A plague broke out amongst the Philistines. They broke out in boils. And it was the, the presence of God to the wicked spells judgment. But the presence of God to the righteous says blessing. And so they immediately came up with this brilliant idea. We got to get rid of because they kept moving it around from town to town. We got to get rid of this thing. It's like a curse. A plague is breaking out. We got to do something. Let's get rid of it. So they came up with this brilliant idea. They set the Ark of the Covenant on a new cart led by two oxen. And I'm not going to go into all the details, but they really made it hard for the oxen to do what they needed it to do. And that is, in one of their Philistine towns, they released it, and it had to follow miles and miles all the way up into Israelite territory all by themselves. And they, 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 did, they put things in place to make that really hard. But in essence, God, see, was superintending this, and he showed the Philistines that he was God alone. And they, you, even as you're reading the story, one of the things they say, this is the God that brought all of those plagues on the Egyptians like some 400 to 500 years ago, closer to 400, that parted the Red Sea. He's in our midst right now, and he's breaking out against us. So they got rid of him. They sent it off. And they ended up, make a long story short, it ended up in Kiriath-Jerim. Saul is simply doing the same thing that the Israelites had done before. He simply wants the Ark of the Covenant there because it represents the presence of God. I'm not convinced, though, that Saul was jealously longing for the presence of God. But he wanted the ark. Yep. Have you ever seen some people, and they, they wear a cross around their neck? And some of them, it, they, they do it for jewelry, but others, they wear it to protect themselves. Or they, they have some other type of religious jewelry because that represents the saint of such and such, and he is the, you know, he's the saint of travel or the saint of this or that, and you know, then I'll be safe. And they treat these things as if, in and of themselves, they have power. That little wooden cross, you know, wonderful opportunity to open up a conversation about the Lord, but most people don't wear it for that. You know, find your, if you wear a cross, I am not in any way putting you down. But there are many people who do not follow God at all, and they wear these crosses very religiously, very superstitiously, just like Saul wanted the Ark of the Covenant. Some people bring around their Bibles, or they set it out on the coffee table. It's more to collect dust than anything else, but it's a Bible. And they just have this belief that if they have a Bible out on their coffee table, then God will bless their home. And they treat the book as if it were the very person of God. They treat the cross like it's Jesus himself. 
you know, sometimes we wear Christian t-shirts. And, and I wear Christian t-shirts, just so you know. You've probably seen some of my Christian t-shirts, okay? Someone gave me a Christian t-shirt, and it says, Team, Team Jesus on it. I've not seen anyone get saved yet from it. I have another one that I don't wear publicly. And it says, y'all need Jesus. Yeah, uh, didn't feel that too many people would come to Christ through that. Not a real good way to evangelize. But, you know, many times I think some, we wear Christian t-shirts because it kind of props us up. Now, <laughs> that's not why I wear it. I'm realizing many of us don't. But the truth is, we use things rather than God himself. We long for things rather than God himself. And this is exactly where Saul was at. He liked the idea of the Ark of the Covenant, not because it was the presence of God. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine? The Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies church, and only the high priest once a year went back there, and he wants it with him on the battlefield? Saul, really? Because he did not understand this is the holiness, this is the presence of God. No, it was his rabbit's foot, his good luck charm. And he was outwardly religious, but in his heart, he didn't care about the presence of God. See, when we get to David, what does he do with it? He worships God. He celebrates with all of his might. And it's more than just some spectacular fanfare. He is doing whatever he can to honor God. Because he understands this is the presence of God. And so he, he has a tent set up. He has the ark brought into the tent. Apparently the tabernacle was in Shiloh and Shiloh had been burned. The tabernacle, either they, they redid it or more than likely it was spared. And same with the Ark of the Covenant, but they were in two separate locations. All right. So David, he wants the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem. I'm going to get to David's heart in all of this. It is not like Saul's, though. He doesn't just want it so that, oh, yes, God is going to bless us now. Why? Because the Ark of the Covenant is in our midst. No. It is, see, for David, it is this opportunity every day in the capital to worship God to fellowship with him. And from that hub of worship, his rule would extend. So do you see, his heart is so different than Saul's. Michael despises David for this. Because you see, Saul relied so much on outward appearance. He was the head and shoulders above everyone. He wore a king's robe because apparently, apart from the robe, no one would ever recognize that he would be a king. But you see, when you meet David, you're just struck. There is something so profound and different about this man. Because he was a man after God's heart, and Saul's was not. He needed that robe. But when David threw the robe off, Saul's daughter, Michael, was like, what are you doing? That's like you're denying your kingship. Are you kidding? David was going to take off his robe of kingship because he stood before the king of kings to worship in his presence. 
And he would be, just like everyone else, a servant of the Most High God. And that's how he worshiped, in humility, in, in brokenness, in, in the sense of you are God. Who am I to approach you as king? And so he took the robe off. You see David's heart. Saul would have kept the robe on. As a matter of fact, he probably would have put his crown on and put his scepter in his hand and done everything he could to prop himself up as king. It's probably what Saul would have done. But we see David's heart, don't we? The next thing we see is that Saul has uh, Ahijah, who is apparently the high priest, because generally it was the high priest who had the ephod. Now, the ephod was attached, it was, it was a garment in which the, the gold plate, in which you had the 12 stones representing each tribe of Israel, and then you had at the top the Urim and the Thummim. The Urim and the Thummim were means by which God would communicate his will. Now, many have suggested that because Saul asks, because we don't, We've never seen the ephod, by the way. We've we've read how it's described. They don't use it a lot. They might say they sought, or the priest sought God and gave King David God's answer. But here it says Saul had him remove his hand. And we get this impression that apparently he would put his hand on those two stones And one would grow warm for yes, and the other would grow warm for no. And that's how we would see. So you'd have to be very specific um, to receive yes and no answers. And when we actually see this, by the way, in 1 Samuel, David seeks the Lord quite a bit. And so Saul is doing this, but he is seeking God, but apparently when he hears the noise going on in the Philistine camp, He says, withdraw your hand. And he grows impatience with the process. Church, can I just tell you that when we are seeking God and his will in our day, I truly believe he has purposefully made it difficult for you to discover his will. And can I tell you why? Because when it is difficult to discover his will, You make one of two choices. You either give up, which is going to reveal your heart, or you're going to press in and press in some more and press in some more, and sometimes with tears because you're hungry. Luke 18, Jesus gave the parable of the uh, persistent widow. And this persistent widow came to the judge over and over and over again until finally the judge was so irritated, he just said, yeah, whatever you want, I'm going to do it. Oh my goodness, he's going to wear me out. Now, God is never going to get worn out by our persistent approach in prayer to him. Never. He's never going to get impatient with you. He loves it, in fact. And he purposefully, I believe, makes it difficult for us to discover your will. And if you find that the case, you can go throughout the New Testament. Paul, Acts 16, and he's trying to seek God's will. He says, you know what, guys? leading an apostolic entourage. We're going to go through Asia. Now, Asia is not on way over there in the east, not the far east. This is Asia, the province in Asia Minor. And he says, we're going to go through Central Asia. And it says the Spirit of God forbade him. 
that was probably a bit humiliating. Here he's the leader. Guys, here's the plan, and yet the Spirit of God forbids him. I can only imagine Paul saying, God, come on, I'm, I'm trying to know your will. And so he presses in further, and he's praying more. So they go north, and he has the idea of going into Bithynia. Bithynia, if you look at a map, is up in the north there. And the Spirit of God forbids him. He's not going to go east into northern Galatia. He's not going to go south where he came from. He can't go north. There's only one other place. He goes west, and he just parks it and camps out in Troas. And he is seeking God. And that's when he gets a vision of the Macedonian man saying, come to us and help us. And the Lord all along is, is leading Paul, but through a difficult path. For the persistent widow, the, the lesson was finding God's will is never easy. Can I just tell you that if you ever come to me and say, Pastor Mike, can you please pray for me? And I've had this happen, by the way. Can you please pray for me and ask God to give you a prophetic word for me? I will tell you I will not do that. I'm not going to do that. I don't see a precedent in the entire New Testament of this. See, each of you have the Holy Spirit. And if I ever get a prophetic word for you, it is going to be confirmatory. Why? Because God's already speaking to your heart. I believe even when in Acts 13, when the word came out, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas were already thinking about missions and God chose their very best two leaders to go out. You see, God wants you to seek the Lord. He doesn't want me to do it for you. See, we as Christians, we, we want life to be easy. We want God to lead us and make it easy. Now, come on, church. Are, you understand me, right? We want God to lead us. It's like we want to go through a drive-thru, get our order, pay, and we're out of there in 60 seconds or less, right? That's what we want. Fast service Christianity. Yes. And God is saying 60 seconds for Moses, it was 40 years. Whew. And he was the most amazing prophet in the entire Old Testament. And it took 40 years for him to discern God's will. Finally, because he was just so discouraged, you can kind of feel that, finally God appears to him in a burning bush and speaks to him. Now, I'm not expecting God to appear in a burning bush. I guess he could, but God can do, how, do it however he wants. But God will purposefully, I believe, make it hard for you because it forces you to press in. The last time that we read about them casting lots, which was an easy way, by the way, to hear from God. The ephod was an easy way to hear from God. Going to a prophet, an easy way to hear from God. But you have the Spirit of God today, and God can speak to you. God can lead you. God can give you a dream. Acts 2 says the Holy Spirit's poured out, and young men will dream dreams. Old men see visions. See, this is what happens under the new covenant when the Spirit of God is in us, and we have the mind of Christ. He leads us, but sometimes, church, it is so hard. Don't expect it to be easy. I mean, that's not unfair of God, is it? Because the most important thing about prayer is the process. Did you know that? 
I mean, yes, God hears our prayers. God wants to do amazing things in his time, in his way, not necessarily yours. But God relishes the process. I, I think maybe we should too because it builds faith. It builds should build intimacy with God. It forces us like this persistent widow to press in more and more. Jesus said at the end of that parable of the persistent widow, when the son of man returns, will he find what on the earth? Do you remember what? Faith. See, that's what prayer, prayer stirs up faith. And, and faith isn't passive. Faith is active. Faith seeks to press in. Why? Because of promises and hope and latch on to them. I will never let go. Like Israel, when he's wrestling, Jacob, when he's wrestling the angel, he refused to let him go until he blessed him. Is that how we seek God? But you see, Saul wanted it easy. And, and, and understand, David understood the use of the ephod. But for Saul, hey, you know what? Time's up. God hasn't spoken. We're done. I'm moving on. We're just going to attack. We're going to, I got my plan. If we could, as we now move into the new covenant and God does not have us use lots, he, that's Acts 1, by the way. It's the last time something like that was ever used. From then on, Spirit of God falls in Acts 2. They always rely on the Spirit of God. And so when God is, is speaking, I believe David, because he was a man after God's heart, he just waited. Sometimes, many times, God spoke right away. He didn't hear. So Saul, maybe you should enjoy the process. I know that the enemy is right outside, but you, do you truly believe that with the help of God that you're soliciting? You just, you're having the Ark of the Covenant brought with you. You're having God speak to you through the, the Urim, the Thummim, the ephod. Why don't you just wait for God to say something? But that takes faith, doesn't it? And Saul wasn't a man of faith. David was, but Saul was not. David had experienced God. In hard times, over and over and over. I mean, if, if there was, of the two kings, I would venture to say Saul had it easier than David did. But look at the life. David's life becomes the plumb line of righteousness for every king that followed him. Why? Because he was a man after God's own heart. We're going to come to that phrase in just a little bit. Okay. Two other things very quickly. I'm not going to get into them necessarily. He does have his men fast. Not a wise idea. I'll let you read about that. But fasting on the outside was such a religious good idea, right? Really bad battle strategy. But you know, fasting, fasting for favor. I didn't say flavor, favor. Fasting for Favorite, that's what he was doing. We're just going to do it. Maybe God will smile. Maybe God will. Maybe God will. Because I'm, I'm doing it hard. He was like that little hamster on the treadmill, right? As fast as he can. Hoping God will like me. Hoping he'll love me. Hoping he'll bless me. Maybe I'll be victorious. And then lastly, the burnt offering. And I won't get into that. Again, a burnt offering. Why does David want the ark in Jerusalem? Let's go back to Second. Samuel chapter 6. 
it says here. Verse 11, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now, Gittite means someone from Gath. That doesn't mean that Obed-Edom is a Philistine. You remember Goliath. Goliath was from Gath. This is probably gath Rimmon. That would be a city in Israel. So don't assume that he's a Philistine. But the Ark of the Covenant is there in his house. Obed-Edom, we find out from First Chronicles, is actually a Levite. Abinadab was not. Neither Abinadab was a Levite, nor was Uzzah or Ahio. Neither of them were Levites. Who was supposed to carry the Ark of the Covenant? The only ones allowed to. Who? Levites. Only Levites. But Abinadab was not. And we know this because the chronicler who, who records the story again, his version says that the reason why God's anger broke out against them was because they did not have Levites carrying the Ark. Okay, <laughs> was excuse me. Let me uh, let me finish that. I was I was reading here. So the Gittite for three months. It's in his house, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, "The Lord has blessed the household of Obed Edom and everything he has because of the Ark of God." So David went down and brought up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Is David bringing up the Ark of the Covenant because he wants to be blessed too? I I'm going to say no. See, that would be what Saul would want. This religious article, this piece of religious furniture, yeah, kind of like a relic. It'll bless me. Maybe if I touch it. Maybe. If wow, Really? One of the saddest things when we went to Italy to visit and we went to Rome is there was a big statue of Mary and half of her foot was worn off because people, whole line of them would walk by and just touch her feet just so they'd be blessed. I just, wow. There's only, only God in heaven can bring blessing. That, that seek him. But anyway, the, the, this article of furniture from the Holy of Holies, is blessing Obed-Edom. See, David, when this incident happens, and Uzzah does not, you're not supposed to touch the ark. You're not supposed to, Ahio, excuse me, Uzzah did, not even a Levite, and he dies. And there are times, church, in which the holiness of God, and therefore the justice of God in the face of sin, says, I'm sorry. And Uzzah's life was taken. Very few incidences of this. I'm not going to get into it because it would take a while to explain. But in this instant, instance, God said, you're not getting it. You're carrying the ark wrong. This, this is my presence. David, my presence. And so it says David was angry. And then he was afraid. He was angry because, God, what are you doing? I'm trying to bless you. I'm rejoicing. And in the face of all of this fanfare and rejoicing and celebrating and excitement of your presence is coming into Jerusalem, you kill somebody? You, you frown upon what I'm doing? Now, again, it's because of how they did it. He's, he's angry. 
But then he's also afraid the holiness of God. We did, we blew it somewhere. And he was afraid to move the ark. But when he finds out that God was, the Ark of the Covenant was there and God was actually blessing the house of Obed-Edom, he thinks, this is okay. God is not angry with us anymore. And you get the picture between this passage and, and First Chronicles that there is some repentance on David's part. He realizes what he had done that was wrong. So he goes back. Now, do you know how they were supposed to carry the Ark? The, the Ark of the Covenant has two gold rings on each side. A long stave staff would be inserted through it. The Ark of the Covenant is only about three feet long. It's about two feet wide and two feet deep. And it, it, it's kind of heavy. You're supposed to have four Levites picking it up and setting it on their shoulder to carry it. But how does David do it? Now, this is where David blows it. I do believe that there's a different reason than David simply wanting the blessing of God in Jerusalem. We're going to come to that at the end, though, because it's really going to reveal David's heart. And we see it throughout this passage of chapter 6. But I do believe that David makes a mistake, and it's as if he's tantalized by worldly wisdom. See, when the Philistines sent the Ark of the Covenant back into Israel, God actually stopped bringing his judgment upon the Philistines. That appears to make David think, wow, maybe we should try it that way. So he falls, follows conventional wisdom, wisdom of the world, and he has it put on a new ark, just new ark, just like the Philistines did. Drawn by two oxen, just like the Philistines did, led by two men who weren't even Levites. It says, and, and it's interesting, and I've thought about this, and, and I'm just going to share with you my, my thought here. But he has 30,000 chosen men be with him while he's bringing up the Ark of the Covenant. Why 30,000? Why 30,000? Can I tell you this? That when the Philistines, years and years, about 90 years earlier, when they brought the Ark of the Covenant into battle against the Philistines, 30,000 Israelites died that day. I, I'm, I'm kind of wondering if maybe David is doing this to honor the 30,000. But see, the problem is what they did in fighting with the Ark of the Covenant with them was wrong. And so David is going about this the wrong way. But he truly wants to honor God, and you can tell that because he is, he is rejoicing and celebrating with all of his might. 30,000 people joining in this throng of celebration for miles and miles until they get to Jerusalem. Anyway, both before the ark starts falling off the new cart and Uzzah dies and it stays in Obed-Edom's house, and then afterwards, both of David's attempts, there is celebrating and rejoicing with all of their might. Why? Because here's the heart of David. He, is the heart, he has the heart of a worshiper. Let me tell you this. When we read that David is a man 
after God's heart or God's own heart. That word after, it doesn't so much mean like to pursue after. It, in the Greek, their prepositions like after are attached to the nouns. This one is attached to the word heart. After his heart, that is God's heart. That word, that, that little preposition, and it's one letter, that preposition means like or as. David will be a man like God's own heart. When you look at them, wow, David's heart looks so much like God's. Why is that? Because David was not anything like Saul. There was no pretense. There was no outward display. There was no seeking God and, and making it, you know, following all of these rituals or all of these things. It, it was David sought God with all of his heart. He didn't care what others thought. He just wanted to have this intimate relationship with God, both in his worship and in his prayer time. You know, the Bible, David wrote this in Psalm 1, that the, the, the wise, blessed man meditates on the word of God day and night, and he will be like a tree planted by streams of water. And at the very end of verse 3, it says, and he will prosper in whatever he does. Can I share a sad story with you? And, and that's my perspective. It's a sad story. I grew up, <clears throat> I was just starting to read the word of God. I wanted to be successful. Do any of you do you not want to be successful? Don't care about being successful. Now it may determine on how you define success. Yes, it will. But do you want to do you want to fail? Did you wake up this morning and say, Oh my goodness, I can hardly wait to fail today? None of us did this. We want to succeed. And so this man was was teaching. He said, You know what? I discovered a truth here, found in Psalm 1, that if you meditate on the word of God, you'll be successful. And he shared his own personal story, how he started meditating on the word, and he became class president, this, this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And at the very end, he says, now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to encourage you right now. This isn't for everyone, but I'm going to encourage you. Let's make a vow before God that you will read the Bible every day. I was one of those. I said, yep, I'm going to do that. Years and years later, I realized, wait a second. Does the act of reading the Bible cause me to succeed? Because if that's the case, is it not easy for someone who doesn't even know Jesus to read the Bible every day? The Pharisees did it, church, and therefore succeed? No. You see, it's not the act of reading. It's this meditating that changes your heart. You see, it's this process. We engage in the word of God, not just so that we, yeah, I've read my Bible today. Can I just be honest with you, transparent right now? And, and I've heard some of us say this every now and then, not for a while. I think you've grown out of this. I, I wish I had grown out of it sooner, but I would say something like this. You know, I didn't read my Bible today. That's why I'm having a bad day. Mm, wait a second. Now, don't get me wrong. When you're reading the Bible, it does set your mind. But I didn't think of it that way. It sets your mind so it's focused on Christ and when you're focused on Christ, you encounter every difficulty, or should, with joy. 
Consider it pure joy, my friends, whenever you face trials of many. Why? Because you understand the truths of God's word. God is going to triumph in the end. I'm confident. I have hope. So it, it, it impacts your attitude. I'm going to have a great day today. But you know what? I didn't view it that way. I viewed it very legalistically. I need to have a quiet time or I need to be in my Bible today so that God will bless me. That's not the point of Psalm 1. See, David got that. He was like that tree, just soaking in by being in God's presence, like Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning but being impacted, her heart being transformed. Many, many years ago, there was another man who was traveling around the United States, and, and he believed that the Lord had spoken to him. I don't necessarily agree with this, what he said, though. And he said, the Lord showed me that he wants to bring judgment on America. And if he could get 100,000 people to commit to praying for one hour a day, God would avert judgment. Now, that's awesome. That is what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane. Could you not pray for one hour? But he didn't say, hey, here's the mark, guys. This is the benchmark we're all shooting for. And I'm just going to judge America unless we Unless I have 100,000 people, which isn't a whole lot, by the way, in America praying for one hour. That's the benchmark. We never read about this benchmark. And if we're not careful, we can stumble into this. You know, I haven't prayed enough today. Prayer is so that we are building this relationship with God and voicing these requests so that as we build this relationship and experiencing experience him daily we see him act on our behalf and that in itself knits our hearts even more to to god and so do you, do you realize that that jesus had no benchmark with regard to how much time he spent in prayer i imagine there were some days were so busy he may have prayed while he was walking, but he may not have had that time to pray first thing in the morning. Does that sound blasphemous to you? Can I be honest? It almost feels that way to me. But the truth is, Jesus did not rely on that ritual. He just communed with the Father because he had some days that were so incredibly busy. He was exhausted. Do you know, though, that before he chose his twelve? He spent the entire night in prayer, seeking God's will. Did he just figure, well, I got to spend 12 hours in prayer for the Father to speak to me? Of course he didn't think that way. But he pressed into God, his Father, because in becoming man, still retaining his deity, there were times in which he had to seek God for hours and hours. Because he was reliant upon the Father. He did only what he saw the Father do. He spoke only what he heard the Father say. He was so intimate and close with the Father. He fully relied upon him. Church, goodness, can we do anything less? See, David's heart was like God. Saul's heart, 
it was a bunch of do's and don'ts, and let's follow the law, and let's do it this way and this way, and don't forget this way. And we're going to fast, by the way, for like three weeks straight. Or I'm just joking right there, but keep fasting during battle. We're going to do this, and maybe we're going to have victory. Wow, you really missed the point, Saul. Is it any wonder that his heart so easily was filled with jealousy and rage and bitterness? And at the very end of his life, so frustrated with God, he sought the counsel of a witch, the devil himself, to be blunt. Wow. He really missed it. Church, God has called us to have that heart of David, a man, a woman, after, like God's own heart. You see, as we are in his presence, as we're worshiping, as we're seeking him in prayer, as the word of God is transforming us, not because we made sure we spent 43 minutes every single day in his word, but because we sought him and his word transformed us and prayer, it transformed us because we were in the presence of God. This was the heart of David. May that be our heart. May God raise up a generation that looks beyond the outward. Church, we should love the word. of. We should love prayer. We should love worship. We should love spending time in the presence of God, even if he might say, he might, I want you to pray all night, just like my son. I would probably balk at that. I probably would. I would probably have to have a voice of God from heaven tell me that. Because I don't do well without a night's good night's rest. But you see, in this intimate relationship with God, this is what this journey is about. Seeking God, walking after him that our hearts would be like his. Amen, church. And because of that, David's heart, like the father's, he walked in triumphal procession. And Saul did not. Can you stand with me? If we could just take a moment right now to pray. I'm over. I'm not going to pray long. I really believe that God is speaking to some of our hearts, hearts that are discouraged. And you just, you needed to be encouraged tonight. Let the Spirit do that right now for you. Father, I just ask that We would leave this place because your word spoke to our heart. As we engaged in worship, its truths really challenged us and really gave voice to what's in our heart. We want to praise you, God, always. You're our all-sufficient one, and we need to rely on you like David. And I'm just praying, Father, make our hearts more like you. Please, God. No matter what you need to do, make make us more like you, Jesus, please. And I thank you. That is the desire in your heart. So God, would you do that, please? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.